Everybody just you got seated? Could I have all you veterans to stand up? You're used to standing up at a moment's notice anyway, right? Look at the veterans in the room to stand up. Come on, all of you. Come on. All right. Thank you so much for your service to this country and keeping freedom free. Clearly, we don't know what to do with it, but thank you for paying for it. Sorry, that was another joke, so. There's been some game changers in our history as a church, and we need to get acquainted with them. This is the last sermon in this series where we talk about some of those people who made a difference. And today we're going to talk, one guy you know well, but I'm not going to talk about him a lot. One guy you don't know at all. And um, his name was Jonathan Lanfear. Let me get to that slide. I got to move things around. So in 1856, a couple days ago, in early summer of that year, June, Jonathan was commissioned to be a missionary to New York City. Uh, he was a businessman. And God called him into missions, so he left his business and became a missionary, and he failed all summer long. The stock market was crashing through the summer in a horrific way. Um, things were happening, and Jonathan couldn't get through to anybody. He come from a Dutch Reformed background and having a hard time connecting with the people of New York in difficult times. So... Jonathan started a prayer meeting in September. He handed out flyers and handed them out throughout New York and his area that he was in and just invited people to come for prayer from 12 to 1 at a church in the area. At 12 o'clock, he was there, front pew, ready to go and pray, and it was just him. And he sat there, and he was like, I know this feeling, by the way. I think it's just going to be you and me, Lord. About 12.30, there was a knock on the church door, and he opened up, and there were six more people joined him, five more people that joined him. Six people that first week. The next week, same time, there were 30 more, and they decided once a week wasn't enough, so they would do it every day from 12 to 1. In six months, the businessmen's prayer meeting in New York City went from one guy to six people to 30 people to 10 thousand business people in New York City meeting every day to pray for revival. Is that awesome? <clears throat> we really need to wrap our heads around what can happen if we would just get out of God's way and start leaning into Him. And so this revival is important. Jeremiah, I haven't called him Jonathan, I'm sorry. I'm glad I put on the slide so I could correct myself. This revival was influential in another guy's life that you know well, though, because the businessman's prayer meeting that started in New York City jumped to Chicago. 1856, D.L. Moody moved to Chicago with a fifth-grade education determined to make his fortune selling shoes, of all things. By the way, he was a very good shoe salesman, the records say. He wrote home in 1857, said there's revival here, and that was six months before the revival actually took off in earnest, which some call the Third Great Awakening, others call the Businessman's Revival, others just call it the tail end of the Second Great Awakening, doesn't matter. Charles Finney was still alive, who we talked about last week at this point. But D.L. Moody came to faith in that prayer uh, out of the revival that started in New York City, but he came to faith in Chicago. And D.L. Moody changed everything. 
First of all, D.L. Moody was not Reverend D.L. Moody, Evangelist D.L. Moody, or even Missionary D.L. Moody. He was just Mr. Moody. That was it. And Mr. Moody, God moved in his life, and he, God used him to basically mobilize the, what we in church terms call the laity, just the average person. And Moody stepped out as an average guy into ministry and life, and others began to follow him. And you had the whole missions movement change, revival change. Deal Moody really did change the world. In fact, if you were to go back, you could back up just a little bit. Let me see if I've got, I have notes here that I can't find. That's how I like them. So, Edward Kimball. Anybody remember Edward Kimball? Okay, never mind. He's a Sunday school teacher. It's who he was. Anybody Sunday school teacher? Ever taught Sunday school and survived? There's, there's a Veterans Day right there. Sunday school teacher Veterans Day. <laughs> Edward Kimball had a Sunday school class in Chicago that D.L. Moody attended. That's where D.L. Moody came to faith. D.L. Moody met J. Wilbur Chapman and, in a meeting and gave him assurance of salvation and later hired him, or they worked together at Forest College. J. Wilbur Chapman mentored a young man named Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday started a revival meeting in Charlotte, North Carolina. Out of that revival meeting spawned a businessman's prayer luncheon. In that prayer luncheon, Mordecai Ham came to faith. Mordecai Ham did a series of meetings in which Billy Graham attended, and he came to faith. 150 years of evangelism were spawned from Jeremiah's prayer session and one Sunday school teacher who was faithful to teach the Bible. 150 years of awakening. I think that's pretty awesome. The third great awakening to me, or the business revival, whatever you want to call it, to me, though, the importance of it is that it, it blurred the lines between pastor and flock, between clergy and laity. It, made, it put us all level at the foot of the cross. And I think that was one of the most powerful outcomes of it, although there were many. And so today, I want us to talk about that mission that we have. And I want to approach it with a lot of caution. Because I realize that as I talk to you about what God wants us to do, some of you are going to feel compelled to do it. And you're sitting there going, well, I thought that's the whole point. It is. But I want to be careful that when we start on mission with Jesus, that we start in the right place. Last week we talked about Paul. Apostle Paul, chapter 9 of Acts. Where Jesus shows up and met Paul, wrecked his life, ruined his plans. And now the guy who's the Pharisee of Pharisees is now a missionary for the Christian church. The one thing he's trying to put out. So let's jump a little bit ahead, and let's look at Galatians today, and let's talk about Paul's journey to missionary success. Doesn't that sound like a great book title right there? Of course, when you define Paul's success, you know you're talking prison, beating, stoning, all that kind of stuff. You're like, yeah, sign me up. I mean, because Paul was a rock star in that he got hit with rocks. Um, <clears throat> Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. Paul writes this, so, dear brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that the gospel message I preach is not based on mere human reasoning. I received my message from no human source, and no one taught me. Instead, I received it 
by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. Wow. Wow. Paul is special. Or is he? Is Paul special? Is he somehow exceptional in some way? Or is he somehow an example? Is he teaching us something? And I'd like to point out that this, the simple thing that happened in Paul's life, even though Jesus taught him the, the gospel in a sense face-to-face or by divine inspiration, the simple thing that happened was that Paul started his ministry with Jesus. He focused and went to Jesus Christ. He prepared for what God was going to have him do through Jesus. Um, now, if you were to read Acts chapter 9, you would see that at, at, on his way to Damascus, went to Damascus, and uh, he got into trouble in Damascus. And there's a phrase in that, I can't remember which verse it is, that says he was there many days. So that many days, according to Galatians, was about three years. So that is many days, okay? And that's the, what he's talking about in Galatians chapter 1. Let me look at the next verse real quick. So, so Paul goes on to write verse 17, a few verses down from where I jumped in a while ago. He says, I, I didn't go up to Jerusalem to consult with those who were apostles before I was. Instead, I went away into Arabia, and later I returned to the city of Damascus. So I just want you to see that Paul's spiritual formation started with Jesus. But I also want to be careful because it wasn't like he was alone. There was Ananias in his life. There were, there were believers at Damascus. So I don't want you to take what I'm telling you to say, well, listen, I don't need anybody. I just need me and Jesus. There are days that's all you need. But if you try and do Jesus without his bride, hey, man, don't disrespect the bride, man. You disrespect my bride, we got a problem. I don't care if we were best friends before. You disrespect my bride, we're not friends. Now we have things to work out. We need pastoral mentoring, counseling maybe. So I'm just telling you, you lay a foundation with Jesus Christ, but don't disrespect the bride, okay? Say amen. amen. It might have hurt, but you, we need it, right? We've got to remember that. Jesus died for the bride. Yes, he died for you, but he died for you in the bride, and that's important to understand, okay? So that was kind of Paul's discipleship. He started with Jesus. Second, Paul walked through open doors that came into his life. So one of my favorite churches in the book of Acts is the Antioch Church. Oh, man. If you were a church planter, which is my, my heart and breath, Antioch is the church. And here's why. No one knows who started Antioch. Jesus started Antioch, okay? Um, so... Antioch Church gets started. Well, I'll come back to it in a little bit. It gets going. People are coming to faith. Man, they're excited about Jesus Christ. They've got a relationship with Jesus Christ. They discover they're not orphans anymore, that they're sons and daughters. I'm sorry, that's another topic. But then uh, Barnabas goes down to check out the situation. And this is what the Bible says in Acts 11.25. Then Barnabas, after he sees what's happening in Antioch, he goes to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. So God jumps into the Gentile world at the Antioch church. This is the first major Gentile church in the New Testament. And God jumps into that world through nobody knows who. And then the, the missionary he set up to reach the Gentile world is, is in Tarsus. He's, he's on the bench right now. So God sends Barnabas down, check it out, and Barnabas thinks of this guy named Paul. And he goes and grabs Paul, and they come back to Antioch, and Paul walks through this open door, this mission of Antioch Church, which becomes the most critical church in the New Testament. 
Without Antioch, you don't have the missionary trips that got the gospel into the Gentile world. They all started here. By, by we don't know who other than Jesus. But the point I want you to see about Paul is he prepared with Jesus. He started, he laid his foundation actually with Jesus. And then he walked through the doors that God opened for him. And there's a couple scriptures that you could think about in regard to that. You could think of Acts, I mean, Revelation 3.8, where Jesus promises to uh, his churches. He said, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, and no one is able to shut it. 1 Corinthians 16.9, Paul says of his ministry in Corinth, which is an incredible ministry in its own right, he says, there is a wide open door for a great work here, although many oppose me. Anytime God opened a door, Paul walked through. There's a good lesson there, okay? Start, prepare with Jesus. Second, walk through, open doors. You with me so far? Amen. Jesus, say Jesus. Jesus. Open doors. Say open do I'm glad you got it. I couldn't say it. My tongue, I just washed my tongue. Can't do a thing with it. The, second, the third thing that Paul did was he carried the flame, which is our subject today, the mission, what we're here to do. And I want to read this passage, and I can't put enough reverence on this particular passage for me. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9.22, he says, I, I am with those, When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness. For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. I want you to see this because this is Paul's heart. Paul didn't just take responsibility to preach the message of the gospel. He took responsibility to do everything he could to make sure you understood the gospel. And that's the lesson we must understand. Because often as Christians, we, we learn a lingo or we learn something about God and we try and share it with other people. And then when they don't accept it, we say, well, I tried and we walk away. That wasn't how Paul did it. Paul said, when I'm with the weak, I will be weak. Whatever it takes to get the message to you, to help you understand, I will bridge the gap. I will go farther than just telling you. I will, I will be with you. I will share with you. I will enter this with you. That was Paul's heart. To me, the simplest way to say it is he took responsibility not just for preaching the gospel, but for those who heard it, for them to understand it. Why? Because he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians, he says, Don't you realize that we're in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize, so run to win. Paul saw this as important, as a victory that had to be undertaken, as a battle that we were in and had to go for. Why? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Because we must all stand before Christ. This is what we forget. We live in a world that says, hey, don't judge, don't judge. And what's the church doing? We're shutting up. And we're calling that tolerance. We're calling that being loving. But it's not loving. Because everybody gets to do that. Everybody. Yeah, we've done things wrong. 
We stood up and told the truth without love, and truth without love isn't truth, and love without truth isn't love, and we've done it wrong. But just because we've done it wrong doesn't mean we should stop. Guys, the, you know what the key to success is? Failure. Keep failing until you succeed. And that's where the church needs to be today. That's where we need to be today. We need to stop sticking our toe in the water and going, well, I don't think I can walk on the water. And stepping out and sinking a few times, what we need to do is remember that every time you sink, there's going to be a Jesus right there to lift you up. Right there. Amen. I think... Oh, I really think Jesus deserves like some praise right now. I, I don't just, He's there. Paul saw himself on a rescue mission. And because of that, he could not be silent. And he could not just dismiss people. By the way, that's what judgment is. Judgment is when we judge people unworthy of us giving them access to Jesus. I will say that again. Judgment is when we judge people unworthy of us giving them access to Jesus. The implications of that are broad. You should write it down and think about it later today because I don't have time to break it all down today because there are some other parts of this message that I want to dig into. I just don't want us to forget that there's a reason Paul carried the gospel flame. It's because everybody has to do that. And it's because in Paul's story, he hated Jesus. You remember this? He was trying to kill anybody who said the name Jesus. He hated Jesus. And what happened? What did Jesus do in the face of Paul's hate? He showed up. Isn't that what Jesus does? He just shows up. Hey, has Jesus ever showed up for you? Has he ever showed up for you? Come on. Yes, he has. I can't think of how many times he showed up for me and dragged me out of a, some kind of murky wave or some stupid decision I made, some moment where I was not feeling like I was a son of God, but rather some homeless orphan in the kingdom. That can't even be. But that's what I feel sometimes. And Jesus shows up. And that's the core of the gospel, isn't it? That Jesus shows up for us, that God cares for us, that he loves us, that no matter how far you run, you can't outrun that. No matter how stupid, naughty, mean, evil you are, you can't be worthless in that regard. God determined your value and his son Jesus on the cross. That's what you're worth. That's what you're worth. So Paul carried the message. And here's how we'll do it. We'll do it with two things. Power and love. Power and love. What am I talking about? You ever heard of those things the New Testament call the spiritual gifts? Every church in some way accepts at least some version of the spiritual gifts. You know, some of them have limited it down to just a few, teaching, serving. Some of them have have embraced them all. My point isn't which ones to embrace. My point is this. They are spiritual. Everybody say spiritual. Spiritual. Gifts. Gifts. How many of you guys have a diesel truck? Raise your hand. Got a diesel truck. Are you afraid of having a diesel truck? (laughs) Must be a Ford or something, right? 
I'm just kidding. I drive Fords. I thought I'd take a jab at me, all right? <sighs> what happens if you put gas in a diesel truck? Yeah, that's what, what happens if you put diesel in a gas vehicle? <laughs> well, you have a nice smoke show. Don't ask me how I know. <laughs> I wonder what spiritual gifts. I wonder what power spiritual gifts. Spiritual things. That's why we need to realize that if we're ever going to love this world and care for this world and care for anybody, we need a spiritual gift to do it, and a spiritual gift is always powered by God. We need God power to, in this world. That's what we need. This is important, guys. You know why it's important? Because we're still trying to do it on our power. How many of you guys, okay, let's, let's bring this home, and it sounds great when we're talking about the church abroad, but let's bring it into your house. What kind of power does it take to run your family? You power or God power? I mean, do your kids need you or do they need God? They need God in you. That's what they need. They need that's the, that's, you want a family that honors God? You want a family that's happy, peaceful, quiet, where people aren't throwing knives at each other? Not that that happens. It's going to take God in your family to do it, and how's it going to get there? Through you. We need God power, and we need God love. What is God love like? Oh, I hate it when he talks about love. It makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> well, let's just stop and hug each other right now. Just kidding. Just kidding. can if you want to, but it's going to creep out some of the guys. <sighs> God love is patient and kind. God love is not jealous, boastful, or proud, or rude. God love, it doesn't demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wrong. That's how God loves you. There's a little more. It, doesn't re it does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. That's how God loves you. That's how God loves you. He's always patient with you. He's always kind to you. He's long-suffering. He waits for you. While you're sitting there trying to figure it out, He's just waiting for you to come back. He loves you. This is the foundation of everything else we're going to talk about today is the love of God. And here's why. Jesus, you guys remember him, right? He was asked, what's the greatest commandment? You guys remember what he said? Love God, and then love. So let's say God knows. Love. Love. That's the first great, that's the great commandment. Great commandment. You got that? You guys remember the great commission? Go. And all the world, preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all things, whatever I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you. Here's the thing. Which came first? The great commandment or the great commission? The great commandment. And if I could throw one in there, the new commandment even came before the great commission as well. You remember what it was? Love each other. 
as we move into these, these, what I'm calling change the world in three easy steps, sounds like a good book title, huh? I want you to found it where Jesus said to found everything. Love God. Love others. Love each other. Go and tell everybody about God's love. You see, Paul spent a lot of time with Jesus, and that's exactly what we need to do. Why? Why do we need to spend a lot of time with Jesus? And you're probably sitting there going, how do I do that? How do I spend a lot of time with Jesus? Sit around, meditate, eat a lot of fried chicken. That's a Tennessee joke. You might not get that. But where I come from, preachers eat a lot of chicken. In fact, one day I was at a guy's house and down south a long time ago, you know, and he had chickens in the backyard, and there was this rooster just clucking around the backyard. We had just had a great lunch of fried chicken, and I saw this rooster just clucking around the yard, and I said, man, that is a proud rooster. And the guy said, well, he ought to be. He just put two of his kids in the ministry. <laughs> That's a preacher joke. If you ever wanted to know what they were, there's one right there. I want you to think about this verse. I want you to dig into it. Jesus said this, All who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them, and we will come and make our home with each of them. What you need to see here is that spending time with Jesus is spending time with the Father. Okay? And this is the foundation of where all this has to start is with a love of God as our Father. Our challenge in life, and the reason we feel like spiritual orphans so often, is because we, we don't feel like sons or daughters. And excuse me, ladies, if I use the term sons, it's really gender, gender neutral today. It's the principle I'm talking about. Okay, so it includes you. So I'll try and throw in daughters every so often. But sons is the term that's typically used in the New Testament. And it means all of us. And if you need me to prove that, I can find some scriptures that will make you guys a lot more comfortable. But right now, I prefer not to. Jesus said, all who love me will do what I say, and my Father will love them. And we will come to them and make our home with each of them. If we could realize that everything we do needs to flow out of God's love for us and be loved. And I think this is the foundation of being with Jesus, is to move out of our orphanhood, if I could use the term, into our sonship. What's the difference between an orphan and a son? So let's talk about that for a second. I'm going to greatly diverge from my notes. That's okay. They weren't that good anyway. So I have, uh, I have all these children that keep showing up at my house. I don't know what the deal is. And um, they're my sons. They come over. They, they, uh, they're my sons. They don't... They, they mess the house up. They empty out my fridge. They, they, uh, they come and they just act comfortable, take, kick off their shoes and make themselves at home. That's just what sons do, right? Even though it annoys me. I'm like, if you moved out, why are you coming back? <laughs> Mom said... If you came over to my house, you probably wouldn't, probably, some of the Marines might, but you probably 
wouldn't empty my fridge. You probably would come in and, and you wouldn't just make yourself at home. You would just kind of feel the temperature of my house or whatever. And you would, you would out of respect for me, you would, you would come in and, and try and not offend me. But my kids don't care about offending me because I'm dad. What am I going to do? You know, well, you can yell at them. I'm still going to have to pay for stuff, you know, right, dad? They're your kids. What are you going to do? You're going to love them. And on their grumpy days, you love them. And when they make dumb decisions, you love them. And when they make good decisions, you love them. It matters. It does not matter what they do. You love them, right? You might yell at them. You might get mad at them. You might fuss at them. You might nag them, but you love them. We live in God's kingdom like a bunch of orphans, like we don't belong. How many of you woke up this morning? How many, how many of you live your life this way? You feel like, well, you know, I was pretty good today. I didn't do anything sinful or stupid that I can remember yesterday. So I feel somewhat spiritual today, and I'm feeling pretty good. How many of you guys live your life today like that? That's the mindset of an orphan. Do you understand that? As a child of God, you don't wake up needing to approve of, get approval in some way to be in the family. <laughs> You're in the family, man! <clears throat> I don't, my, I've got a, a thing going on in my throat. <clears> throat> so, shouldn't have ate that frog, frog legs for breakfast. <laughs> a Tennessee thing. But you might remember this hymn that Stuart Townend wrote. I don't know. 15 years ago, 20 years ago now. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. Listen. The Father turned His face away as wounds which mar the Chosen One bring many sons to glory. Thanks. The father turned his face away from his son so he could turn his face toward you. Do you understand that? You are sons of God as believers. Granted, if you haven't entered into faith yet, if you're not a believer yet, this is what the father wants for you, and all you have to do is step out of your world and into his. That's called repentance. It's a change of mind. And at the end of this service, there's going to be somebody over there who can show you how to do that and talk to you about how you can turn your life over to Christ. But as a believer, as a follower of Christ, God has played everything on Jesus. So today you may be doing well. You may get to this afternoon and go, man, I got up, I made it to church, I listened to a long sermon, I really feel like a Christian today. Woo-hoo! And I got good news for you. You are accepted today. Woo! -hoo! 
But tomorrow's Monday. <laughs> no praise team to, to wake you up on Monday, man. And you'll get up Monday and you'll go to work and you walk in the door and maybe the, first, the secretary at the desk or whatever is grumpy. Not that that would ever happen, but maybe they are. And it sets your whole day up. And you get to the afternoon and you've lost your temper. You said things you shouldn't have. Used foul language, chicken, canary, bird, whatever, and all day long. And then you get home and you go, man, I blew it today. I don't feel like a Christian. I don't feel accepted. Guess what? You're still accepted. Woohoo! It's, it's never what you do. It's never what you do. Never what you do. It's always what he's done. Man, you build your mission on acceptance. And you will never need another person to accept you again. That's a truth, man. If you live this life accepted by your Father, you will not, be a, you will not need to be a people pleaser anymore. You will not need any of that stuff. Because here, in that place where you always feel alone, you will finally realize, I am not alone. That's, that's what I mean by spending lots of time with Jesus. God wants us to actually love this world and become love this world and express love to this world. Man, to me, that is the most warrior-like thing any of us can do, is to be a warrior of real truth love. Why, why, I say, why do I say truth? Because there's a difference between things that are true and truth. I know you're saying, oh, he just sounded like a liberal. No. What I mean is this. Yeah, there are things in your life that are true. Maybe you were in addiction. Maybe you're caught up in pornography. Maybe you're struggling in your marriage and in relationships. And those things are true. And every day you got that stupid little accusing voice in your head saying, you are a liar. You are a failure. You will never make it. You are nothing. And you hear it, that echo chamber in your brain using things that are true to beat you down. But that is not truth. Truth is, you are beloved. The Father determined your value by the sacrifice of His Son on the cross of Calvary. He cares about you. He wants to be with you. Jesus says, me and my Father, we will come. We want to hang out with you. Amen. And it doesn't matter what you do. Jesus likes you when you don't like you. We'll spend lots of time with Jesus. Do like Paul. There's a lot I could say about that, but I'm, I have overdeveloped this point, but not too much. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and jump down to the fact that from that place of loving God and being loved by God, by the way, if I could just throw that out there, maybe today, rather than finding something to do for Jesus, if you could just let him love you. Amen. Just be loved. It could change your life. It could change your life. You could stop trying to earn the Father's approval. He loves you. Just accept it. Grow in it. Spend time with Jesus and say, Jesus, teach me what this means. Then you could take a, then you could take a chance. Then you could step out and your software will all mess up and you'll lose all your slides. It'll be great.
Excuse me. I th- Hannah, I might need your help in a minute. <clears throat> hey, just sit there and think for a minute. Think, oh, Jesus. <laughs> there it is. Am I back? Ah, it's back. It's good. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Then if you know you're accepted, then step two, you can take a chance. I want to encourage you here, uh, and, and this may sound a little crazy, but hey, you're used to it, right? It's no biggie. Amen. I, I want to suggest that a lot of things that are in you are God as a believer. Now, what I mean by that is this. You know, you've got the enemy. I believe there's a spiritual enemy. We call him the devil, Satan, the accuser. And he's out there dumping thoughts in your head. Yeah, yeah, I know that's going on. They're accusing thoughts. They bring guilt and shame. They're actually pretty easy to recognize if you think about it. The Bible tells us to take those thoughts captive. Okay? So, yeah, there's an enemy out there dumping junk in your brain. And then there's you. I mean, you were born in this world. This is the only life you know. You don't know life in the kingdom yet because you were born on earth and it's broken here and it's corrupt here. So you got these thoughts that are a lot of broken thoughts in you, okay? I get that. I'm not dismissing that. What I am also going to say, though, is that the moment you became a believer, Jesus Christ moved in. Right now, you've got Jesus in you. You are in Christ. You don't have to get there. You don't have to go there. All you got to do is stay there. That's all you got to do. All right? You're in Christ. So if Jesus is in you, where are Jesus' thoughts? Say, in you. Say, in me. All right? They're in there. So what we are doing as Christians is we are learning to walk in the Spirit. We are learning to hear the voice of God. We are learning to distinguish between the thoughts of Jesus, my thoughts, and the enemy's thoughts. Okay? That's the journey. The good news is, Jesus is in there. I'm in him. Everything that comes my way comes in Christ. Think about this, because this is a shouter. That's right. You know, you, we always use that as a qualifier. Well, yes, in Christ, all my prayers are answered. Yes, in Christ, blah, 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 and in Christ. But then we never say what we're thinking. But am I in Christ? Uh, let me ask you a question. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Give me just guess where you are. Say in Christ. That's where you are. You didn't put you there. God did that. Bam! You're in Jesus. In Christ, man. Stop living like you're trying to get in. And start living like you are in. So now. You're in Christ, right? So guess all those problems that are coming your way? Guess what? They're happening in Christ. You're not alone. Did you know Jesus is like a genius? I ain't kidding. He's really smart. He knows, I guess he pretty much knows everything. He knows how to weld. He knows how to shoot. Better than any of you guys. <laughs> knows how to hunt. Knows how to, to work a job. Knows how to have a boss. Knows how to be a boss. Knows how to be a husband. Even knows how to be a wife and a mother. He knows it all. Oh, he's smart. And he's in you. 
And every problem you got where you're like, I need to be a better mom, I need to be a better dad, I need to be a better uh, businessman, I need to be whatever, you fill in the blank. Jesus is like, I know how to do that. I know all about it. I created it. It was my idea. It's how I got this job. Thanks for having fun with me. I appreciate it. I hope it helps you relax a little bit to know that you can trust your Father, and that's what faith is. And if you learn to be loved by your Father, and you learn what that's about, love will grow faith. And faith is just trusting Dad, trusting Jesus to, to, to get us through, to help us out. That's why Hebrews says it's impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to Him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. And I love the message translation, don't hold this against me, of Hebrews 10.39. It says, we're not quitters. Who lose out? No. We'll stay with it and survive, trusting all the way. So, i got to wrap up. We need to spend time with Jesus. We need to take a chance, and, and then we need to carry the flame ourselves. How do you carry the flame like Paul did? Well, I say stay in the flame. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 12, 28 again, it says, <clears throat> excuse me, since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let's be thankful and please God by worshiping Him with holy fear and awe, for our God is a devouring fire. Stay close to God. You know, actually the third step is the first step. So I know I said three steps to change the world, but I guess maybe it's only two, and one of them you do twice. You sandwich all that risk-taking in God's presence and in God's presence. And that's how we change the world. And get phone calls in the middle of sermons. <laughs> I want to ask you a question, and I'll close. And well, actually, we'll go into communion. We'll have communion together. Ah, what are you doing with this life you got? I mean, I'm not here to make you feel bad or whip you into shape. I'm just as broken as anybody in the house. I'll just ask you this question, though. Are you just going to survive until you die? Is that the plan? Just build the retirement accounts, work until you're... Done and health starts to play out, retire, try and visit the grandkids and the doctor until you leave. <laughs> Isn't that how it works? Or are you going to do something with this life? If you're going to do something with this life and you want to live in the sonship that you're called to, well, realize your father's already got a mission in play. He wants to make his love known. He wants everybody to know how awesome he is and how awesome Jesus is. And that's what we're here to do, to let them know, to show them in every way we can, to do everything possible to help them understand, understand that Jesus is the answer. So as I, as I take us to prayer, and then, Michael, are you coming up? Michael's going to take us into communion. I just want you to lay that before the Father. What am I going to do with the rest of this life I've got? Father, 
I love your mission. I love it. I love the people who touched me and made sure I knew about Jesus. Thank you for Danny Craig, that junior church teacher who took time as a child to share with me Jesus and as a youth to be my friend, to make sure I understood. Not, not just that I knew the information, but that I understood that you loved me. Lord, this room is full of people who are sons and don't know it. They want to, though. We want to. We want to live as sons. We want to live in your mission, in your dreams. We want everybody to know how awesome you are. So, Lord, you raise up, you move, you stir. Lord, you do the things you do. I can't. Lord, we come to you, Dad. We love you. Thank you for loving us in Jesus' name. Michael.